this morning, we are in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew uh, chapter 16. And this, I know, it's the second part of Matthew uh, 16. Uh, but really, I'm breaking it, da- breaking it down into its two sections. This one more goes together with the remainder of this chapter, which I'm titling A Surrendered Life. A Surrendered Life, Part 1. So, is there everyone there? Yeah? All right. Let's all get to our feet, and we're, we're going to read these few verses here. Verses 13 through 20. Actually, I, I understand Pastor Justin Alfred had you guys read, right? So stand by. No, <laughs> I know he kept you awake, right? All right, so let's start out. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, just um, desiring to hear from you. Lord, really the place where we ought to be before you is is surrendered lord surrender to your lordship to your will to your purpose your plans lord that we would walk these uh this life and with peace in our hearts lord with confidence that we are walking uprightly before you lord but it's it first starts out with confession confession that you are the lord uh, that you alone can save and we are saved by grace through faith in jesus christ And so, Father, I pray that we would ourselves resemble the very confession that Peter has made here. That you, Jesus, are the Son of the living God. That you are the Messiah. You are our Savior. And you are our King. And so, Father, we ask, Lord, that you would give us understanding. That you would minister to us where we are. Lord, if we have been stubborn and hard against you, Father, I pray that you would break down any barriers and we would simply receive whatever it is that you have for us this morning to speak to us and to pour into us, Lord, your word. We thank you, Father, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, most people have been taught the importance of fighting for everything that has to do with life. Um, If you're in school, hey, you make a strong effort and you fight for good grades. If it's sports that you're in, you got to fight. you got to give it your best effort in order to make it a first-string team, in order to win a position. you got to fight for it. 
No one's going to give it to you, right? You've heard it said in life that no one gives you anything. You earn everything. Being selected for desired positions at work even. It's not like it's just going to come to you. You have to work for it. You have to put forth your best effort. You have to know what you're doing. These are some of the common things that we're taught to fight for. The Bible talks of fight as well, though. We contend for the faith. We wrestle against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And it says in Ephesians chapter 6, Therefore we are commanded to take up the whole armor of God. So there should be fight in the Christian. We, we should stand fast against the wiles of the enemy, the schemes of the enemy. But what sometimes we don't realize as Christians is that our faith involves more of surrender than anything else. We tend to have this spirit of fighting and fighting and pushing and, and warring against and resisting and all of that. And what we fail to recognize is that the most important thing for the Christian is to first surrender on a daily basis to the Lord. We are to surrender our cares, not cling to them, not hold on to them, not embrace them. We are to surrender our anxieties. There are many people who are suffering from anxiety. And, and it shouldn't be within the church. Really, we should have this certain hope to where we're not anxious about anything, but it, everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, letting our requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. We shouldn't have anxieties. We should surrender those to the Lord. We shouldn't have any worries, although today we worry quite a bit, don't we? We're always worried about something. Something comes up and it occupies our thoughts. It overwhelms us at times. But we should be surrendering those worries to the Lord. In Haiti, we, um, we saw these, these donkeys and I was reminded that they were animals of burden. You know what an animal of burden is? An animal that carries weight for someone else. Uh, the people would not carry these burdens. They'd put them onto the donkeys, and they had these, these uh, saddles, uh, type of a saddle to where it carried everything. We are not animals of burden. We are not designed to carry burdens. We are to surrender those burdens to the Lord. And yet, oftentimes, we have many problems because we insist on carrying the burdens. And the Lord says that we are to surrender them to him, for he cares for us. According to 1 Peter 5, 7, and write down Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34 as well. We surrender also to the lordship and kingship of Jesus in our lives, to his glory, his plans, his timing, his wisdom, his salvation. Problems and stress arise when we continue to insist that we have everything figured out. And if not, then I'll work a little harder. I'll keep fighting. I'll keep standing. I'll keep moving forward and figure this out for myself. Instead of simply trusting in the Lord and looking to Him for everything that pertains to life and godliness. Again, I remind you of the title of this morning's message, which is A Surrendered Life. 
That's what we ought to be living every single day of our lives. And it starts with confession. A confession of who God is in our lives. Because that is exactly what we are to understand and to learn from the life of Peter as he confesses exactly who God is before him. Who Jesus is before He's God. He's Lord. He's Messiah. He's my Savior. He's my King. He governs me and everything that pertains to who I am. I believe Peter is a man that we can learn much from. He spoke what many think but don't speak. Isn't that true? Even though Peter stumbled and misspoke and even denied Jesus, he was passionate about learning from Jesus and finally coming to the full understanding of who he is and knowing what a full surrendered life to Jesus meant. Finding a peace and forgiveness and possessing the certain hope of God's glory. That's what he looked forward to. If you want to look at surrendered lives, look at the disciples uh, of the church of when it first was born. I mean, these are disciples that finally got it. They learned. It's not a life of continuing to fight and put up your hands to the Lord, but to put them down and surrender and live your lives surrendered according to the will and plan of God. My hope this morning through the study of these verses is that we too might uh, come to know what a surrendered life to Jesus looks like. That you may know that very intimately and that you would know that that life is worth living to its fullest. Knowing that we have found life eternal in Jesus and that what he desires is that we simply follow him because he leads us always down the right path. He, he never has us deviate to the left or to the right. He leads us perfectly. So what are we to do? Surrender to his lead and simply follow him. The one thing that we will be leaning on this morning is what I've brought up several times, and that is confession in the sense of claiming rightly who Jesus is to us. That's what we ought to do and focus on first and know personally. So confession, again, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, Caesarea Philippi is about 25, 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It was formerly known as Peneus, and it was a center of worship of the Greek god Pan, or Peneus. It, that's why it was uh, named Peneus. But the city was renamed uh, under Philip, uh, the Tetrarch, which, which actually Tetrarch, uh, just to, so you know as we go through Scripture, and as you'll see it again, it simply means the governor of a division of a province, or sometimes of a country. But that's what a tetrarch is. So you'll see it again through scripture. So what happened was that this city was renamed by Philip the Tetrarch in honor of himself and August uh, Caesar, Augustus Caesar. We don't know why Jesus and his disciples are there, but it was an area that was populated mainly by the Gentiles. Um, there were a number of temples dedicated to idol worship. And so all of this was the background to what it was that took place 
the discussion that Jesus had with his disciples. And I think it was a very fitting setting for the discussion that he had with his disciples. And the question that he asked them, who do people say that I am? Who, who do you say that I am? I think it was a very fitting setting. Knowing this, it was the, that, that perfect back, backdrop, and Jesus asked two questions. Number one, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Verse 13. And we need to start out by understanding, understanding that Jesus did not ask this question because he needed affirmation. Or to understand what the world was saying about him. But to lead them to this second question that he was about to ask. He always, he always knows beforehand where it is that he's going. He knows the, the answer to the question. He knows all of that. We already know that Jesus was very popular. And his popularity was increasing as he continued to display these, uh, his powers, his, his, the miracles that he was performing. He was healing, uh, allowing the, the blind to see, the, the mute to speak, the deaf to hear, the crippled to walk. All of these things he was doing. So his popularity was, was growing. Uh, he had thousands of people that were not only hearing him preach and teach, uh, but also following him along the roads that he traveled. So Jesus' question produced some interesting answers, as we see here. here. Who, what does the world say about me? Who, who do they say that I am? Well, number one, John the Baptist some say that you are John the Baptist. Well, do you know who Herod is? Herod was the man who had put John the Baptist to death. In fact, he had him beheaded. But he thought, perhaps, perhaps this is John the Baptist that came back from the dead. And he resurrected. So this would have been Herod's worst nightmare. And apparently the people somewhat agreed with him. Some did think that perhaps this was John the Baptist. So that's what the world was saying. Maybe it was John the Baptist. Some say Elijah, being the messianic forerunner. Obviously, the people hadn't made the connection between Elijah and John the Baptist. But some thought that perhaps Jesus could be Elijah. Others said Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Basically, just another prophet and preacher of judgment and repentance that would ultimately be rejected. He was already being rejected in, in, uh, in many ways uh, by especially the religious leaders, but some agreed with him that perhaps he is Jeremiah or he's one of the prophets that has come to preach repentance and judgment. Even today, we know that there are many who look to Jesus as being a, a good man or a prophet or even a good leader but dismiss him truly as being Lord, as being Savior, as being the Messiah. They say many things about him, but miss the point of his coming and who he truly is. It was C.S. Lewis that said, quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people say about, often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. 
You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. And I concur. I agree. Have you ever heard someone say, well, he's a prophet. We had a conversation yesterday, uh, Bettina and I, and uh, talking about this uh, conversation that someone else had, and, and just asking, so what, what, what makes up a prophet? You know, someone who, who says, an uh, Old Testament prophet. Someone who prophesies about a future event, and it comes to pass perfectly. It has to, it has to come about perfectly. So, could he pass as a prophet? And the answer is, yes, he can, right? Um, but he can't not be a prophet and be God at the same time because God knows all things. He's omniscient, right? We often hear people say, well, he's a good moral teacher. Well, it wouldn't be moral to teach a lie, would it? It would be immoral. That would make him a liar. And if he claims to be God, then that, then that would make him a lunatic if you don't believe it and you think that he's just spewing off something that is false. Right? There's something wrong with the way he's thinking. He's got some problems in his head. But those are not true. He is indeed Lord. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. But then as we go on, as we continue with Matthew chapter 16, Jesus followed up that question and their answers with another question. Who do you say that I am? It's one thing to know what the world says about Jesus, but the most important question that we need to come to a conclusion and give in the affirmative is that Jesus is Lord. And it's really important. Who do you say that Jesus is? And is that demonstrated by the way you live your life? When Jesus asked his disciples this, Peter answered saying, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is an amazing acknowledgement. Peter speaks up for the disciples and says emphatically that Jesus is the Messiah, foretold by the prophets. Jesus is the Son of God, speaking of his relationship to the Father. And Jesus is the Son of the living God, distinguishing Him from lifeless idols and their worshipers. He was making this distinction of who it was that was standing before Him. And in this statement, Peter refers to Jesus' deity, Savior and God, Messiah, the Son of the living God. And with this answer, Jesus then tells Peter that He is blessed for having this revealed to Him. Uh, and the one who revealed this to him, it, it wasn't the people around him, for he had answered, hey, the world, what do they think? Well, John the Baptist, Elijah, 
perhaps Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So he didn't get it from flesh and blood. Jesus identified exactly where he got it from. That it was revealed to him by the Father who is in heaven. If we rely on people to tell us who Jesus is, and not God himself, through his word and by his spirit, then we will never truly know him for who he is. Our Savior, our, our Lord, and our King. I remember myself having these questions, having this desire to, to find out exactly who, who is Jesus. You know, and, and my friend very wisely pointed me simply to Scripture. He explained it to me, but at the same time, he says, you know what, look, look for yourself. Look through Scripture. Read. And when you read, if you truly are desiring to know who Jesus is, before you start reading, ask the Lord to reveal that to you, and he will. God wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He desires to reveal to us who Jesus is. And so therefore, we ought to be pointed back to the word. We ought to look for the answer to our question as to who Jesus is in the very word of God. Because other people, quite frankly, they have all kinds of different answers. He can be used for all kinds of different things. And, and we see it manipulated, um, this question, and, and the, di- the, 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 um, the answers that we desire to hear are given to a lot of people. Oh, he's, uh, he's the God that can give you everything that you want. You know, if you just believe in him enough, then, then you'll have perfect health. You'll, you'll be, hey, listen, if you, if you sow this amount of money, then you'll get tenfold, sometimes a hundredfold. I mean, for me, it worked out to where I gave, a, man, I just went on complete faith and just gave everything. And look at me. I have a mansion. I have two Mercedes Benz, a McLaren. And you know what I mean? It's like, what do you want to hear? You won't hear who Jesus is by the mouths of the world. You'll hear it by the mouth of God himself through his word. You definitely don't need to rely on what others think or say Jesus is, but if you are truly desiring to know who he is, then go to the Bible and ask God to reveal Jesus to you. And he will. That's what he desires, that you too would confess that Jesus is the son of the living God that he is your Messiah and Savior. But then we continue. And we get to these verses here, verse 18, that has spurred a lot of controversy within the church. Verse 18 says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Uh, Peter. Petra. Kepha. Means rock. But little rock. Pebble. Um, grain of sand in comparison to the rock of Gibraltar. Um, I want to work this out a little bit, but let me start out by saying that I understand that the Roman Catholic Church believes that Peter was the first pope, but 
This is never addressed by Peter nor any of the other disciples, nor is it stated explicitly by Jesus or anyone else in the Bible. Um, Peter himself didn't see himself as the rock upon which the church was built, but rather saw Jesus as being the cornerstone upon which the church was built. Really, what we need to do is, is go back to Peter. What is his witness? What is his testimony of who Jesus is and who he's not? We really need to examine that. We need to see for ourselves as we go through Scripture and read and study and come to understand. In fact, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So who is the cornerstone? Who is the one upon which we are being built? Is it Peter? Did he point to himself or did he point to Jesus Christ? He pointed to Jesus Christ. It's also worth noting that Peter continued to make mistakes not only before the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but also after. Uh, there was a situation where Paul rebuked Peter for being a hypocrite before the Gentiles. And that is referenced in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. And you can see as he went through how it was that he was exercising his liberty with the Gentiles. And then once the Jews came, oh boy, he changed his tune, right? And now he was uh, walking according to the law and he, you know, was acting differently. And so Paul rebuked him. If a man is the foundation upon which the church is built, then it is built on shifting sand and not upon the rock that is, that is immovable. Him who is the same yesterday, today, and forever and will never change the meaning of his word as men have and are today interpreting the word of God to mean whatsoever they desire depending on the day in which we live in, the culture in which we're in today. And so we can't look to a man. Peter didn't look to himself. Peter didn't see himself as the rock upon which the church would be built on. And if he didn't, then neither should we today. The rock upon which the church is built is Jesus Christ, which we read in 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, in reference to the gates of hell, uh, this is, when you think of a gate... You think of something that keeps someone out, right? Um, these gates that we find behind us for the railroad um, keeps people from crossing. Well, most people from crossing, right? Sometimes we rush and we knock them down. We, we don't. Other people do. But that's what we think about as far as gates are concerned. Something that keeps other people out or animals or something else, right? So the question is, is hell on the offensive or on the defensive? Well, we know by the increasing hostility, by the way that, that uh, really uh, the opposition comes aggressively toward us, that it's not the defensive. They are always, uh, the gates of hell, that is the powers of death, are always warring against us. Aggressive, hostile, and they are r real. 
This is not something that, oh, we, this is now we turn to fantasy and now it's something that uh, comes into our imagination and, and you know, this is uh, figuratively speaking. No, 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 this is real. There is um, the powers of death, uh, demonic rule, ruling authorities that are against us, are opposed to Jesus and everything that he stands for, the plans of God and his desires in our lives, the very word of God. So gates of hell is a Jewish term that means the powers of death. And so Jesus says he will build his church and the powers of death will never prove more powerful against her. Never. Come what may, the church will remain standing. Atheists won't bring the church down. Government won't bring the church down. False teachers won't bring the church down. The world won't bring the church down. And Satan won't bring the church down. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. She will stand. And this is something worth rejoicing over. And sometimes we get so concerned about the church. I'm not concerned about the church. I'm concerned about the people that make up the church. That's who I'm concerned about. I'm really, truly concerned about making sure that you know exactly what the Word of God says and that you're growing. You're growing as believers in the Word of God, that you're maturing, that you're gaining strength in your faith and the exercising of your faith, and that you're walking uprightly before Him. But the, the church as a whole, I'm not concerned about it. I'm learning more and more that the Lord um, will do with the church what he wills to do with the church, and I simply go along with it. I'm, I'm a, a co-laborer. I, I participate just as you do. But I'm definitely not concerned about the church. I'm not worried. I'm not filled with anxiety. I'm at peace because of the, gates, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Nothing and no one has the power to crumble the church. Certain groups may come and go. False teachers, government laws that prohibit or hinder the worship of the living God may be established in the USA and even in California. But I tell you, is that going to stop you from worshiping God? What are we going to do? What are we going to do the day that it's publicly known and the government knows And there's a law that prohibits public worship of Jesus Christ. What would the church do? Oh, the the, uh, not-for-profit, the 401c3 designation, that's going to be lifted. Let's just say, I'm not saying it is, but let's say it is. What what are we going to do? Are we really reliant on government to tell us what we can and cannot do? Not at all. Not at all, right? Let's take our cue from the first Christians as we see them going through in the book of Acts. They were relentless, weren't they? They knew who Jesus was and and they were willing to give their lives to worship and glorify him and to spread the gospel throughout the whole world. That should be us. We need to always remember this, that the powers of death will never prove more powerful against her. 
Lastly, Jesus speaks to Peter about giving him the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This is interesting, right? You all have seen the cartoons and the stories and, and all of that to where you see Peter at the pearly gates. And, uh, and of course, he, he has the, the gates to the kingdom of heaven. And so you come before Peter and, uh, and he takes a look at the book to see if you're on the list or not on the list. And, and it, he is the one that determines whether you'll go into heaven or not, right? No. No, that may be a, a fun little cartoon, but this is where they get it from. That's not true. Let me ask you this. Who's the door? Jesus. Jesus is the door. What does it say in John 14, 6? Except through me, right? He's the way. He's the truth. And he's the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. It's not any man. It's by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The moment we surrender to him as Lord and Savior is the moment the, the, the door of heaven has been flung wide open. And we have access to the throne of grace. Anytime now on earth, and can you imagine where, when we're in all of God's glory? How beautiful that will be. How glorious. Nowhere... In the Bible, is there a plan of succession for the privileges that Peter knew? We also, I also want to cover this and not uh, negate or, or not ignore the fact that Peter did indeed have these privileges. There's no doubt that Peter introduced or opened the door of the kingdom of heaven to the Jews. Jot down Acts chapter verses 14 through 41. You know what happened then? It was the day of Pentecost. And how many souls came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? 3,000? 3,000. 3,000 repented and were baptized that very day. So did he not, was he not used by God to fling open the door of heaven for the Jews on that day? Absolutely, right? He also introduced or opened the door of the kingdom of heaven to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 10 and 11. If you go to those two chapters, we look at the story of Cornelius. It was beautiful how it was that, that Peter received this vision. This vision that don't call uncommon or uh, yeah, common what I have deemed to be uncommon. Set aside for me. No longer. Don't do that. Go and preach. Go and tell them the good news, right? To Cornelius' house? To a Gentile? Yes, to the Gentile. Go. So he introduced the kingdom of God to the Gentiles. How about binding and loosing? Well, it was commonly known in the Jewish life, uh, the Jewish culture, to mean administration. That was exercised by someone who was leading or had governing authority. And what immediately came to mind is a gentleman and a brother by the name of Moses. You know who he is? Yeah, he's sitting right there. No, I'm just kidding. No, Moses. We know Moses, right? He, he led the people of Israel out of Egypt. 
And he had the very same authority. Moses had the power to bind and loose according to the law. But never outside the bounds of God's word, nor in his own authority. That's what's important also to understand here. It's not like Peter had, you know, carte blanche. Just, you know what, whatever it is that you desire to do, whatever it is that you say, that no matter what it is, if, if it's kind of, maybe you clarified my word a little bit, I don't know. You changed it up a bit, you know, it, it's, it's all right. You know, you can have at it. No, that's not what is meant. Administration of, of the word of God. We see that um, with those who were leading the Israelites. Joshua had that position. So what does it mean to bind? To say that something is forbidden. It, it's forbidden. Why is it bound? Because God's word says it is bound. It is forbidden. Don't, don't loosen it. Don't let it out. It, it, it's forbidden. That's some place where you ought not go. What does it mean to loose? Well, to say that something is allowed. Something is forbidden, bound, allowed, loosed. So it's allowed. That's okay. You know, when we are asked, well, is this forbidden or is, it, is this allowed? Well, let's go to the Word of God. Let's see what it says. Because the gift of administration, as far as God's Word is concerned in teaching, really we should be in line with God's Word, nothing else and no one else. Again, no one can say something is forbidden or allowed outside the word of God. Pastors, deacons, teachers, and leaders within the church need to understand that we can simply declare what God has already declared to be forbidden and allowed according to his word. Nothing more, nothing less. This is exactly what the word of God says. We have to rightly administer the word of God so that right conclusions can be determined. Otherwise, Wrong conclusions are determined. And it's relevant. It's, you know, we, we can just kind of go along with the day in which we live in uh, if, if this isn't so and kind of make our own determination. But that's not the way the Lord has designed it, our lives to be um, lived out. It has to be according to God's word. And so Peter was told that whatever is bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. And it's interesting that as the disciples had asked, you know, the, the Lord, you know, how, how do we pray? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? All right. And then lastly, the last verse, uh, it says, Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. It was not his time. He didn't want it revealed out there. Um, soon enough, it'll be known. He'll go to the cross, die for the sins of all mankind, be buried on the third day, resurrect from the grave. And so time, the time will be right, the fullness of time, the perfect timing is, is going to arrive, but this was not the time. And so he told them, don't, don't tell anyone that I am the Christ. But they, at this point, knew very clearly. With all of this said, we need to make clear that the confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is what Jesus was driving his disciples to know and declare for themselves. And we ourselves ought to be at that point till we, we can ourselves declare because we know. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Son of the living God. He is the Messiah. He's our Savior. Jesus told Peter that he was blessed to have this revealed to him and for him to confess it himself. Why? Because in this confession, Peter comes to know Jesus for who he tr truly is. 
the Messiah, and not only the Messiah, but his Messiah, Peter Savior. It's okay to know what the world says about Jesus, but who do you say Jesus is? Is he the Christ, the Son of the living God to you? Now, Peter was a very strong man, wasn't he? He was a fisherman. He had to be a a strong man. Not only physically, but also personally. One who was very opinionated, was he not? He was a spur-of-the-moment kind of a guy. But he was also very loyal. And even though he failed at times, knew that Jesus loved him. And his confession of who Jesus was in his life endured through those failures, even when he denied him three times. Jesus came and he restored him. He was asking Peter, do you love me? Sometimes we miss that. We, we think, man, again, you know, we've done too much. We've gone too far. I don't know. And yet we can see in Peter how it is that the Lord desired to restore him. He came back. And he asked him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know I do. Peter would confess and learn how to live a surrendered life to Jesus Christ and his will. But the first order of business was confessing that Jesus is the Son of the living God and the Savior. And maybe you suffered from being opinionated and strong-willed, strong-headed. Another, another word for that is stubborn, Right? You fail to concede to God's will, recognizing Him as not only Savior, but as Lord. Sometimes we we are quick to say, He's my Savior. He's my Savior. But when we realize, as we're going to next Sunday, that sometimes what we say is actually opposed to God's will, it's not in line with who He is. And He might tell you, just as He told Peter, get behind me, Satan. Wait a minute, He had just confessed that Jesus is the son of the living God. Is, aren't we done? No, we're not done. We're not done. What Peter was learning all the way through was learning to surrender to the Lord. And Jesus desires that you simply surrender to him and his will for you according to his word, that you may come to know that peace that surpasses all understanding, that you wouldn't be filled with anxiety, worry, concern, all of those things that can overwhelm you. Just, just stop. Just stop for a moment. You know, and what, what we're going to do here in closing is just take a moment to just pray. Is there anything that's overwhelming you, making you anxious, worried? You feel overburdened. Why? You, 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 sometimes we can get busy There are many things to do. But why do we get to a place to where we feel overwhelmed? That when we feel like the the pressures of life are just bearing down on us and it's overwhelming, I I can't take it anymore. Well, it's at that point when you realize that, that the Lord simply wants you to surrender. Just stop. Stop trying to do it in your own strength and just release it to the Lord. He desires to do that and lead us down a path that uh, we know to possess peace and an understanding, a complete surrender of trusting and having faith in the Lord.
I pray that you also surrender this morning. Heavenly Father, this morning as we've come together and we be, begin to take a look at how it was that Peter confessed that you, Lord Jesus, are the Son of the living God. You are Messiah. Lord, that in you that there is hope and there is certainty, there is peace. Knowing that, Lord, you desire to forgive us, Lord, and to lead us down this path, Father, that is narrow, yes, but it leads to your presence, it leads to who you are, and ultimately, Lord, one day, it will lead to eternity in your glory. But I pray for, for us, the church right now, my brothers and sisters, that if there's anything that's overwhelming them, Lord, that they would at this point surrender it to you. Asking, Lord, that you would give them that peace which surpasses all understanding. Lord, that they would stop carrying these burdens and that they would simply cast them upon you for you care and you love them. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you. We thank you for loving us the way you do. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy, for your love, for your compassion, and for your